that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Very excited for today's episode for multiple reasons. First and foremost, because I get to spend some time with my best buddy in the world, the notorious P.O.B. Thank you, John. He really is. He That's very nice. Yep. That's very kind. He, he and my brother, my two best men at my wedding, stood up for me. I uh, Thank you. enjoy any time we get to baloney together, especially when we get a topic that I'm excited for. And today is one that I am genuinely excited for for a lot of reasons. So first and foremost, let me say our guest today is not just an accomplished author and podcaster and powerhouse Italian-American. She's also a listener to the show and a member of our new neighborhood, which for those of you who are out there from the neighborhood, thank you very much for your support. For those of you who aren't, it's a great venue for us to get together in a private space and catch up on the episodes, what's going on in the community, exchange questions, ideas, and interact with each other. And it's been a wonderful source for all of us to kind of see where this show goes and, and learn from one another uh, and learn from the community out there of listeners. So I'm very excited for us to bring in today's guest, not only because of her connectivity to the show, but also because of her newest book on a topic that I know myself and Pat are really passionate about, which is the history of Southern Italy and particularly the history of the bourbon period of the two Sicilies and the history of that monarchy. And uh, today we get to talk with Diana Giovinazzo, who is the author of Antoinette's Sister, a novel about the former queen of the two Sicilies, Maria Carolina. And it is uh, a beautiful new book. I just got my copy yesterday and one that is long overdue as a biography in the English language for sure because this is a very fascinating historical character and one that just doesn't get as much play as her dearly departed sister, Maria Antoinette, or Marie Antoinette, the former queen of France, we all know came to a less than glamorous end. And uh, I think her sister, Maria Carolina, has as interesting, if not a more interesting life and story. And Diana has done a great job of telling it. So Diana, welcome officially to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you and uh, very excited for the topic today in this great new book. Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this incredible topic. Um, so I'm originally from Utica, New York, in that area, and I moved out here to California because my dad lives out here. And, you know, coming out here every summer growing up, there was just no, no stopping me. My, my mom was doomed for me staying in New York and... He and I were having a discussion about the family because I was interested in the family genealogy as pretty much every Italian is where, how did we get here? And I was doing research and I always wanted to be a writer. That was always the dream to write. And for me, the writing just didn't happen for a while. It just, I was spinning my wheels. I became a paralegal because I was like, I need to pay the bills somehow because I'm Italian and I need to eat. That's fair. <laughs> and my dad and I were having this discussion about the family and the question moved from how did our family get here to why? Why did we come? Something had to push the family out of Southern Italy and my family's from Calabria and Sicily. And there was something that had to push us out here. And so he and I started talking and the subject of the Garibaldis came up because he was working on his book, the Italianita book. And we were talking, he's like, you know, you really need to look into the Garibaldis. I think you'd really like Anita Garibaldi. And I was like, well, okay, I guess. And I started reading a biography about her and immediately I was taken by her story. She was a fierce woman. She did a lot for Italy and for Garibaldi. She was the love of his life. Uh, he called her the queen of his soul which I still can't get my husband to call me that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that with my wife. She's going to love that. <laughs> and so I was really, I got really into it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try my hand at writing historical fiction. And I did. And everything started working. I got an agent. The book got picked up really quickly. And I was like, you know, this is something, you know, the idea started to flow. That's when I was like, there's so much Italian history. There's so much more to our culture than mafia and meatballs. Yeah. And this was something that I really wanted to share. And I'm very interested in women's history. 
so much of women's history is just glanced over or forgotten, especially like in the case of Anita, where she was the footnote in Garibaldi's story. And so that's how I got into writing historical fiction. And then after, um, around the time, I think Anita or Anita hadn't quite come out yet. And I was having a conversation with an agent about what was next, what were we going to pitch next to my editor? And I was maybe halfway through a biography on Maria Carolina. And we were talking about stuff and she was like, yeah, I don't know if that will work. What about this one? And I was like, well, I'm reading this book about this really interesting queen. And I just started talking about it. And she got really interested. She's like, I want to hear that story. Give us a pitch about that story. And what brought me to Maria Carolina initially was when I was working on The Woman in Red, my first book, my editor, she was like, I kept referring to the two Sicilies. And she's like, what is the two Sicilies? We don't have that much information on it. I want more of it in the story. So I did what any good author would do and become an expert within 24 hours. And I was <laughs> reading, <laughs> I picked up Lou Mendela's books and I just started researching all of that. Um, I think at one point I came across, you did a talk, John, about the two Sicilies and Ferdinand. Yes, I and, did. Yeah. And in so Cleveland. I, and, yes. we, and, we, and we broadcast it for the podcast. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I was listening to that on my way home from work. And my thought was, who was the poor woman stuck with this man? <laughs> that's, that's exactly. Oh, what I, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's what we caused? Oh. <laughs> yes. I didn't what, see that coming. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I know, spoiler. So, yeah. Um, and that's when I started researching her, and I just fell for her, and I wrote the story. This is my pandemic baby. So while everything was shut down, I was in this office writing this book. It's very interesting to me that you referenced that episode because it was never intended to be a podcast episode. It was actually a presentation I gave in Cleveland uh, to a live crowd long before COVID. And the audio, I just recorded it really for myself for notes. And the audio was really terrible. But I got a reaction there and decided to broadcast it here on the podcast. And we've gotten a lot of reactions to it. It's episode 113, Why Are We Neo-Bourbons? Something like that. Why we think of ourselves in this light as uh, students of history looking back at the history of the South and the Bourbon period. And the thing that really stuck with me from doing that and the reason that I ended up broadcasting it, mm-hmm. very specifically, I, I remember it often, was I finally started to take my qualitative approach to this idea of Southern identity and history in the Two Sicilies and really match it to quantitative research, which was done in, I mean, just totally transformative way by Pino Aprile and Teroni. It's so much of it is, is driven by numbers and facts and statistics. Mm-hmm. But the statistic that stuck out to me the most was that in the pre-unitary European environment, the Two Sicilies was the country with the lowest percentage of net emigration, people leaving the country to, to relocate. And then within like 10 years after, it was the highest. And, and mm-hmm. you say you started your exploration with the question of why are we here? And that to me has always been the crux of all of my research. And I know Pat as well, because we do a lot of it together mm-hmm. into the South. And uh, I think it's safe to say, Maria Carolina, once you scratch the surface of this Southern history, she becomes a really formative figure for any of us who have studied into this stuff, because not only is she present at the royal court for decades but she's kind of the driving force because she's married to king ferdinand who's Mm -hmm. been king since he's a little kid when his father the incredible king charles carlo uh, leaves one of the more enlightened monarchs of his time leaves to take up the throne of spain and ferdinand's kind of this spoiled child king and Mm -hmm. the marriage is one that's so absolutely off kilter to two mismatched humans that i think I think one of her last films Lena Vertmuller ever made was in um, the late 90s. She made a movie called Ferdinando e Carolina, mm-hmm. all about how mismatched. It's a very, very fictionalized, but their marriage has been famously observed as a, an incredible mismatch. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what made Maria Carolina, Maria Carolina, and, and how she developed this amazing force of nature personality before coming to Naples? Uh, Maria Teresa had such a huge hand in her story and developing her as a human. So Maria Teresa had 16 children. 
and that's to say that you know our girl Maria Carolina had 17 because she couldn't be outmatched by her mother <laughs> and yeah and so Maria Theresa truly was the mother of Europe we always think of Queen Victoria as being the mother but she was really the first of the monarchs to have such a huge family before that you're having like maybe one or two births leading to all these wars of succession and then you have Maria Theresa coming in and she was placing all of her children all around Europe. And it was for her, it was about creating, you know, power and gaining what her father in her mind lost. And so she was such a force. She also called Italy her Italian colonies, yeah. which I found really interesting. And it was imperative for her to place her daughter in the kingdom of the two Sicilies to the extent that there were two other women that were supposed to marry Ferdinand. There was a Johanna and then there was Josepha before Maria Carolina, smallpox. And that whole epidemic was a thing, which was something that I could really relate to while I was writing this. Yeah. And they were supposed to marry him. And when she was marrying uh, Carolina to him, she felt like she was, you know, too much of a queen. She had to be a queen before she was a mother. And that she was, in a way, sacrificing her daughter into this kingdom where you had this ruler who just really was inept to rule. I don't like to say that he was an idiot or go into that trap of just, you know, over the surface, he was an idiot. Because he really, I feel like, if he had been given the tools to be a ruler, I think he could have been a good ruler. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Maria Theresa, for those who are not history nuts was the empress of Austria. And uh, I think now we're so far removed from the Risorgimento and Italian unification that people don't understand how big of a role as the grand villain Austria played in the Italian psychology for so many centuries before Italy became a country. And this is going to come up continuously in her story because Mm -hmm. she always maintains her Austrianness in in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. And Ferdinand is the byproduct of Spanish line of the Bourbons, right? He, he only comes to the throne because by a historical kind of accident, all of his father's half-brothers predecease him. Mm-hmm. So his father, who reunites the kingdom into Sicilies after the 1730s, and, and really is, as I say, one of the more enlightened monarchs of his era, built so many institutions for the poor, brought so much in terms of infrastructure to the kingdom. I mean, left an amazing legacy. Uh, Half of what you see in Naples, Sicily, and the other regions today is is his direct Mm -hmm. fingerprint on it. And Ferdinand is his, I guess, third son. Yeah. His first son has to go to Spain with him to be his No, he actually stays. um, Oh, right. I'm sorry. There's Philip who stays uh, because there was something wrong with him, which is really sad to look at how we look at mental health and that for the history. And so he stays with Ferdinand. And that was really something that I found interesting with Ferdinand, that he kept him with him. Yeah. His older brother who had developmental issues and uh, was sort of closeted away in the the palace. Yeah. And it was, it was really sad that they did that to him. And he, I think he kind of took that personally, keeping him there. And then his second son, um, Carlos II, or whatever in the line, right. he goes off to Spain and then Ferdinand is there. And that's where I think, you know, all these advances Carlos started to make with the King with Two Sicilies kind of goes to the wayside because Tanucci comes in and there's corruption that comes in with him, in my opinion. And then that's where the history also, the history and the fiction kind of, merge together a little bit I think when writing a historical fiction because you get a little bit of your own takes on the history I like to say it's fan fiction for history yeah because that's and you and you also have to try to merge the the politics there was so much politics going on during that time period and within this kingdom there was corruption that was happening and so some things had to be merged and I had to play with but that was also the fun of writing fiction I mean, it's got to be great for a history fan. You get to inhabit the lives of these characters and kind of act them out like somebody you know, playing with toys as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's such an exciting thing to do. Tanucci's a great character, too, a, a Tuscan government bureaucrat who is really one of Carlo's most trusted advisors from his time in Tuscany, follows him to Naples, serves as his right hand. And then when Carlo is called back to Spain, Tanucci is sort of tasked with, when he leaves, sort of, 
his his task is to raise Ferdinand and also rule the kingdom as uh, his prime minister, but directly reporting back to Spain. I mean, so much of mm-hmm. what's going on is the political evolution of the two Sicilies at that time, because, you know, for hundreds of years before, the kingdom had been ruled by various monarchies from abroad, from Spain, from Austria, from Savoy for a brief time in Sicily. Mm-hmm. And then you have this reemergence of an independent South united under the Bourbon line. It splits off into its own line from the Spanish with Ferdinand. And Tanucci is sort of the um, the bubblegum in the in the gaps of the dam, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's there to sort of tie it all together, the knot at the center of everything. And it does. It does inhibit the development as a leader for mm-hmm. Ferdinand, who, who's famous in his many, many years long reign, which we're going to talk about, as the Rey Lazzaroni, the king of the people. And, you know, famous for going out and playing cards amongst the common people of Naples and buying macaroni from the macaroni vendors in the street and eating it with his hands. And it was his insistence on speaking the Neapolitan language that meant that until 1860, all of the kings of the Bourbon line spoke fluent Neapolitan. So he's a really beloved king, but he is sort of a terrible administrator and leader. Mm-hmm. But his wife, Maria Carolina, is sort of bred for this, as, as you mentioned. Yeah. So let's talk about when she gets to Naples, what she finds, and how she sort of works her way into the leadership of this place. So for her getting there, it was interesting. One of the letters I came across, because the book has letters interspersed with the chapters, because I really wanted to keep that Austrian influence. And she had a very close-knit family to an extent where even though there was a lot of them, they were all involved in each other's political dealings. And there was a letter from her brother Leopold to Joseph, basically saying, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. Putting these two together is just going to be a storm in a teacup. We have to be prepared to go in if this blows up. So that's what she walks into. And I love the the first time she met, meets Ferdinand, he tells her the story of uh, playing funeral with her sister. <laughs> <laughs> so the story, for those who might not uh, be familiar with it, Uh, When they found out that Josepha had died, he was very upset about it uh, because he could not go out hunting or whatever game he had in his mind for three days. So instead, they played funeral and they got a page boy. They dressed him up in women's clothing, dripped chocolate on his face to make it look like smallpox and carried him around uh, the palace. (laughs) And that was her first true meeting with him. And then at the end, it's like, and I have, this has to be my husband. I have these duties I have to perform. Yeah. What the hell is <laughs> the basic summary of that. So that was her first meeting with him. And just, there was a lot of time that where she needed to grow up as a character. I mean, she's 16 years old coming into this world. And though she may be bred for it, she was just not prepared at all whatsoever. And having him just not being prepared either, she really had to grow and learn as a person. I think that was the, the most fun and one of the most challenging things to get into for both the history and for the fiction. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, you, as you mentioned here, she takes the place of her departed sister who mm-hmm. was intended to be queen of the two Sicilies. She finds this very, very strange situation when she gets there. How does she begin to wield the influence and power that will eventually really make her the de facto ruler of the two Sicilies? Well, one of the main things is she gives birth to her son. The first son out of, I think he was like the third child of hers. Yeah. And that was something that I think was genius on Maria Teresa's part, where she had a clause in the marriage contract that once you give birth to a son, then you get a seat on the Privy Council. You get to be his regent until he comes of age. 
And that was something, once that happened, that's when she started to make her power moves where she got to push people out, move them around, eventually kick out Tanucci or force him into retirement and start to make, you know, she gets John Acton, who uh, was, it became her prime minister in as into the Privy Council. And so it was, that was really a big factor for her. And I think also as uh, someone who is personally a feminist, and somebody who, you know, writing this fiction, there was that real conflict, I think, with her having two girls beforehand. And then also seeing that her mother was capable of ruling this massive kingdom, but she couldn't do anything with her daughters because she needed a son. And so there's a lot of wonderful conflict with that. Yeah, there sure is. It's interesting. You mentioned John Acton, the British naval officer who is sort of brought in to eventually replace Tanucci as the... the Prime Minister wasn't the actual position they had back then, but uh, Maria Carolina's time and Ferdinand's time, their reign for me is very much painted by the relationship between the two Sicilies, the British and the French, because Mm -hmm. what's going to occur during this period is the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars, and over the course of their very long reign together and then after Maria Carolina passes Ferdinand independently, they're going to flee the capital of Naples twice Mm -hmm. for different revolutions during the Napoleonic revolutions. Mm -hmm. Acton, obviously, is a a British agent and a British subject and begins to bring a a British influence to the court in Naples for the first time, really, and Mm -hmm. builds this alliance that's going to matter for decades. Talk a little bit about the relationship she has with Acton and the relationship she has with with France as well, because mm-hmm. her favorite sister, unfortunately for her, was Marie Antoinette. And we all know where that mm-hmm. takes us when we talk about France. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy I actually get to talk about Acton in one of these interviews. This is the first time I've been able on book tour to talk about him. So I'm so happy. <laughs> um, he was such a fascinating character to work with, both historically and in fiction. Um, I had to... As a fiction author, I kind of had to walk this fine line because there were rumors about him, the two of them having affairs throughout history. And even going through some of the uh, books that I've read, there were people reviewing the books. They were like, no, 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 there was a there was a an affair. No, there wasn't an affair going back and forth. So I walked this really fine line between the two of them. But they had this close, I think, relationship where he was intellectual and ways that Ferdinand was not. Ferdinand wasn't a big reader. She loved to read. And I like to play with that once we get to Ferdinand. And so with Acton, she has that intellectual stimulation that I think for somebody who is as smart as she was, that was something attractive to her in even just a friendship sense. And he was really put through the ringer of being this um, bad guy. He was always painted as a bad guy by her enemies, by his enemies, because they don't like, didn't like what was happening. So he was really fun to create and delve into, but he brought a lot of that uh, English influence. There was um, Captain Nelson who famously fought the Americans during the uh, American revolution. And he brought that in a lot more uh, English people started to come in. There was uh, a William Hamilton, not, aligned with um, Alexander Hamilton, but he was still um, an ambassador from England that was there. And so there was a lot more of that influence coming in. And in some ways, sometimes I kind of feel like she was kind of this pawn, kind of created the situation where she was a pawn between France and England. They're having this, this war going on. She's trying to stay somewhat neutral but she's also trying to navigate between the two. And so she gets used as the country gets used as a pawn. I think a lot of reason is that I think because of Acton's actions, whether good or bad, if he intended them, that's kind of where she wound up. And then you have the situation with France, where I think that's a point in her historical record where things turn, where she goes from being this enlightened ruler to just closing everything off, closing off from people. They had a lot of refugees from France coming into the two Sicilies at the time, which was something really interesting for me. 
you know, knowing that, you know, you have these refugees coming in both here in the United States and in Italy and other places, and they were dealing with refugees coming in from France, and they weren't sure if they were terrorists, because the word terrorist was formed during that time period. And that was something really fascinating for me. And she just, she got so angry at the murder. Um, and I'm going to go out and say it, her sister was murdered. I'm going to yeah, take Maria Carolina's. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think Marie Antoinette didn't have the gumption, in my opinion, that Maria Carolina did. For Marie Antoinette, or Maria Carolina, she could have possibly been the Queen of France. And so if she was, there's a whole different history would have, we would be talking about right now if she was. And I really don't think Marie Antoinette was really capable of handling the situation in France as well as possibly Maria Carolina or somebody else. And so when her sister was murdered, she just, she got so angry and she vowed revenge. She wanted to see whoever was ruling France destroyed. And I had so much fun just delving into that anger. I don't necessarily say fun, but it was therapeutic in a lot of ways for me, just getting into that anger that she had for France. And, you know, there was a point where, you know, she banned the use of uh, French, which I found as a ruler to be quite fun to write, that she wouldn't allow it to be spoken at all at her court. And I took it a little step further. She didn't want to hear it. And then you have this ambassador come in who only speaks French. It's not unusual at the time. And And she gets really petty. And when that was going on in the book, my editor came back to me and she was like, should we move this up? She was, because they're like, that's her sister's on the, her life is on the line. She's being really petty and she's now allowing the use of the French language. And I was like, oh no, no, that has to stay there in this spot because that's how angry she was. And that's how petty she was about this. And I, as you can see, there was so much, I loved writing this book. It was a fun book, you know, both the history, getting into the history and just, it was my escape book too. You know, one of the things I love about monarchical history right the period of european and then really global history because of the colonies when these nations and their empires were ruled by basically one big family mm-hmm. is that when you study modern history you know republics and elected officials the biographies are really interesting but they lack that interrelatedness and so this game of inches that history is is changed on the personalities of really one big extended family so mm-hmm. you know if you think about it that pettiness, that revenge, that desire to be impactful in another place because of your family, it really changes the course of Southern history unbelievably and forever. Because first and foremost, if the south of Italy, if the two Sicilies was not at war with France and the French Republic, you would not have the need for the extensive British presence, which eventually becomes an influence that leads to a global turn of opinion on the South in the 1860s. You wouldn't have the occupation of Austria in the South for so long, because basically, once her sister's killed, she takes this neutral country with a very meager military presence. I mean, we're not talking about a a global superpower here. Mm -hmm. And she decides to goad her husband, this sort of sweet, hapless guy, into going to war against France, a war that the country and the people are ill-prepared for. Mm -hmm. And they get turned back pretty quickly, and the French Republic invades the Bourbons with their British advisors, leaders like Acton, Nelson and his support. They flee to Sicily, and the Naples and the southern half of the peninsula get declared the Neapolitan Republic, and Mm -hmm. they're going to come back again, and then they're going to flee again, and, and, you know, all of these turns... And it's really all because of her love for her favorite sister that Mm -hmm. this stuff happens, you know. So this game of inches in history, you know, makes you think maybe had her sister Joanna lived and she not become the queen of the two Sicilies, maybe history wouldn't have gone that way. Maybe the South would be a different place and maybe we wouldn't even be in this country and maybe there would be, you know, (laughs) a, a a different history in the South. I mean, it's just amazing to think. And for such an impactful character, she really doesn't get much attention in history. I'm blown away. I never, ever, ever, ever considered that the death of Marie Antoinette had such an impact in the fact that it took the two Sicilies, which basically was an island. 
mm-hmm. in the sense that you had the papal states that kind of sheltered from the rest of Europe and threw it into a global stage and brought in the English that eventually laid the foundations for the overthrow of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I never, it all goes back to the French Revolution. It really does. So much yeah. of today's world is directly traced back to 1789. Mm-hmm. And I, I never, ever, ever thought of that because had the English not gotten there, the Savoyas never would have had the support they needed to do what they did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the beauties of historical fiction is that I can pull in these histories from like England, from the kingdom of the two Sicilies, from the women themselves and create a narrative around this history. Uh, One person uh, that was at an event with recently called it uh, putting flesh on the bones. Yeah. So you see what's going on in the world. And even one of the other things that kind of struck me when I was writing this was how much the American revolution affected all of this as well that that was like this kindling matchstick because not only do you have these ideas going on that the americans had but we bankrupted the french yeah Yeah. it was we owed france like millions of dollars and in that day that was a ton of money and we didn't pay it back and that just completely wiped their economy that brought up a lot more of these issues that brought the french revolution to a head yeah, it's amazing to think about how interconnected all this stuff is and how our 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 American Revolution then, you know, the 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 ripples from the pebble in the pond of history kind of leads to our being here mm-hmm. in so many ways, right? Yeah. And you could always sort of take out that one factor and question if I teach this in school all the time. America bankrupted France and caused the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And the French Revolution got the English into the south of Italy and the English being the English saw an opportunity to take advantage and make money on it and to overthrow us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. But it all comes back to the good old U.S. of A. Yeah. I can't get it. Really? <laughs> I'm stunned because it all goes back to the French Revolution. All these well, things. Pat, and you also helped. I mean, Pat's actually in the acknowledgments. Me? Yeah, Me? You remember, I told you that. I put you, I, that's why you got. I gave you a gifted book because... You and I would have these conversations about uh, the culture at the time, the food. We had these great food conversations about the history of food, which is something I also love. And there was the ice. Remember, we had the conversation about the um, the ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was uh, her biography talked about it. Uh, somebody had gone and had those special ices, and I actually put that into the book. And we talked about. Um, I know so many as the connecting. Wow. See, Pat, yeah. all the work that you're doing here in, in the new neighborhood, it pays off. It means something to people. Yeah. That's a total testament to why wow. we do this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what and I'm thinking actually, now? Huh? I'm, I would like to recreate those ices. That would be very <laughs> cool. cool. I'm, that would be I'm, very I'm cool. A, Diane, I'm a sick person. I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. I, I just, I, I just <laughs> Welcome to my world. Welcome yeah, to bad, my world. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. It is great to know that the work that this whole platform is about actually impacts people and then you know contributes to these kind of works that's absolutely unbelievable princess beard is gonna love this oh she sure is she sure is she'll love this this. it's a shame her english isn't good Mm. yeah yeah she'll make her way through it though she's pretty i don't know about reading but her spoken english is pretty good but diana to that end any plans to have this published in italian i would love that i absolutely would uh it's I've already been uh, published in, there's three languages. There's Romanian, Serbia, and Croatia. This has been published in. Wow. Uh, The Woman in Red is actually published in Italian. And that's the Anita Garibaldi book. Have you been able to garner any sense of what the modern Italian assessment of Maria Carolina is as a historical figure? Has that come up at all for you? Um, not too much. I haven't heard too much about it. Um, I kind of feel like I would be kind of surprised if they pick it up in all honesty, because you have this queen who's part of this kingdom that they don't really, you know, it feels like they want to kind of hide it under the carpet because it's not part of the unification story where I feel like with, uh, Garibaldi, she, he's part of the unification story. So I think that kind of helped lend towards it getting picked up. But I, w- I, I would love it. I know I was terrified when The Woman in Red came out in Italy. 
because I was just like, oh my God, if it's not well received, what am I going to do? I would be so embarrassed. Uh, But I've actually gotten messages from people in Italy saying how much they enjoyed the book. So I would hope that uh, Antoinette's sister would be a nice follow-up. Yeah, it's amazing. There's probably more likely to get a biography of Marie Antoinette published than you would Maria Carolina. And Mm -hmm. I'm very interested that you pick up on the sort of historical sense of revisionism and and, uh, 160 years later, censorship around Southern stuff. I mean, that's something Pat and I have been dealing with for 15 years. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that's changed now with Tironi and so much more being published out there and uh, this movement. I've often thought of her, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, particularly today in the United States and everything that's happened in the past two years about public memorials and statuary and and, uh, how we assess our historical figures. There was an article a couple of weeks ago that said Italy had the lowest percentage of any EU country of public memorials dedicated to women. And I often think to myself, you know, again, this there's some enlightenment to the repressed history of the South. Mm-hmm. One of the more well-known monuments in Naples, in, in the historic center of Naples, is Piazza Dante, this beautiful semicircular piazza where all of the antique booksellers of uh, of the city are, are headquartered. And many, many people fail to remember that until the unification, that was Largo Carolina. That was uh, named after her and her contributions in, in building it and her dedication to uh, academia. And, uh, you know, there was once a statue there to this great queen. And I often think, gosh, it'd be nice to put that back, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, restore the story of this woman, and, and it seems like you've done a good job of uh, of giving uh, those of us who believe in what she did a, a tool in that restoration. Thank you. I, I hope so, because she's somebody that I've grown to admire. And for me, with my family history, I know my family was there in Italy during her reign. And so in some way, on a personal level, it's connecting myself to my ancestors, if you want to get metaphysical or what have you, it's, there's still this connection. This is, this was going on and affecting my, my family and my ancestors. And it led to them coming here. But at the same time, they were dealing with these wars and this stuff. And I, I like to throw in little Easter eggs with the book. So there's a family name that's thrown out there. And then because I'm Calabrian, I do have a line where um, Maria Carolina says, thank God for the Calabrese. <laughs> I, I, had, I had to put it in there, whether she said it or not, I don't know. But I was like, I need to put that in there. Well, you know, to be fair, she very well could have because... The restoration of Maria Carolina. First of all, that's for those true. who that's very yeah, true. They, that's very. You, you, she didn't really even. You, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, as much as I love my beloved Sicily, and I know Diana, yeah. you're part Sicilian too, so we could say this. She did not enjoy her time in exile there because the royal palace in Palermo had been ignored for centuries. So it was, you know, had no furniture. It was dra- I mean, it was built by the Normans. So mm-hmm. they moved from this magnificent palace in Naples with all the modern amenities to a medieval castle. And she desperately wanted to get back to Naples. And it's only at the tip of the spear of the Calabresi, led mm-hmm. by Cardinal Rufo, a Roman Catholic cardinal who is a knight and a noble. And he leads this gang of um, revolutionaries from the countryside of Calabria. And they actually do chase the French out of the kingdom. And so she she owes yeah. the Calabrese everything, so much, really, yeah. her return. Yeah. yeah. And it was um, for that period of the story, I had to try to focus because when you get these contracts to write these books, you only have so many words that you can do. So I had from, I had a, a limit of 106,000 words and the first draft came in at 105,000 words. And I had this conversation with my editor because there was like these other, you know, the back and forth with her and how, and, I, and how to navigate that properly. And then you have these republics that come in. And I had this conversation with my editor. I'm like, I want to cover this part, but I also did all this other part of stuff with her is very important. Can I have a little bit more wiggle room? And we had, and she was like, no, no, we can't. We got to keep it under the 106,000 words. So unfortunately for this book, the Republic and that doesn't really get covered, but you know, hopefully there could be another book somewhere down along the line that kind of gets into it. Who knows? We'll see. Who is the next story that you want to tell? Do you have another figure that you want to explore? There are two figures and one 
topic, uh, an event that happens in Italy that I want to explore, um, but I cannot discuss them on, on a recording. Wow. Uh, one of them, yeah, one of them is currently with my publisher. So fingers crossed it gets picked up. Um, we'll see. And then there's, um, I'm working on a pitch for another person right now and researching a third. Can you tell us if any of them take place in the South? Um, yes. Of course, okay. I would, because I'm a southern, a southern Italian girl. Of course, something's gotta have, gotta have. <laughs> of course, I do. So, <laughs> so you, so you, a self-professed southern Italian girl, what do you think of her after having finished this book? You know, where is the balance between her personality, her impact, her impact on your life as a, as an Italian American and part of this southern diaspora, her uh, accomplishments, her flaws. Where do you come down on the side of positive, negative, uh, how she should be remembered? I love her. Um, I think she should be, we should be talking about her as a queen right along with the greats. I really feel like that. She did so much for the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. She was involved in resurrecting those projects that she talked about with Carlos. She brought a lot of them to fruition. Caserta, so much of Caserta would not be there without her arts humanity all of that and i really try to portray that in the books the olives that we think of for southern italy i I got in touch with a volcanologist we had all these discussions about vesuvius and the science that was developing about volcanoes like oxygen at the time that she was around was still a theory wow and i you know we got into that history and what was going on and she was creating these things for the people and for her country and it's kind of been really cool. I can't say kind of. It was very cool to see with readers. Uh, there's always been already been reviews and people on Instagram sharing the book and talking about her. And they talk about her that they're like, hey, this is a queen we need to be talking about. This is a queen I didn't know. She's amazing. And I think for me, just on the very base level of writing this book, it chokes me up a little bit to see that people are bringing her back into the narrative, that they're talking about her, her again, and they want to know more about her. I know in my, on my website, I put ma- the majority of the books that I use for reference. So people can go back and pick up these books and find out the actual history. Because I know we're talking a lot about the history and stuff, but there's also the fiction aspect that I get to play with because the fiction I couldn't match the fiction always or the history always with the fiction. Where was the most glaring example of that? Um, I think with uh, the children, that woman had so many children and I was always um, my pot, my co-host for my podcast. She would, she would laugh at me because we're, we are taught always talk about books and stuff. And I'd be, I'd be complaining. Like I wrote the scene and I had to go back and check to see if she was pregnant because if she was pregnant, there are certain actions that she couldn't do. And I was constantly having to go back and, and check on that. But with her children, their deaths and sometimes with their births, having to align it with the shape of the plot and the tension mm. in the story, because that's something that that also kind of comes up against the history is being able to keep this plot going and keeping a reader's interest and keeping this tension up where you've got these high stakes going on with the story and you've got to keep that going, which is something that I know with a historical fiction, there's like two different types, really. There's the um, historical fiction authors who just like to make things up and like they pick a, they pick a point in the time. They don't do any actual people you know, sometimes you have a cameo here or there and they have people that they set in that time period. And then there's people like me who picks a woman from history and creates a story. And we kind of joke around with each other where they're like, your job is so hard because you have the story in this map that you have to try to follow. And I laugh at them because I'm like, well, you've got, I have an outline already built in for yours. I don't. And so that's always something fun that we like to joke around about, but it's true. I have this outline already built in with her life that I have to try to try as best as I can to keep true to it and keep true to the history, the culture and her story and create this woman that people want to know more about. Yeah. You get tasked with interpreting the person, their personality, their 
strengths and weaknesses and, and sort of becoming them. And you, you mentioned your podcast, which is Wine, Women, and Words, mm-hmm. a weekly podcast around literature and a, and a good glass of wine. Uh, you describe yourself as a feminist. When you're writing a, a historical woman mm-hmm. and writing for her, I think it's interesting to think about the sort of extra task, whether it's fair or not, that you've got to not only, uh, I don't want to say judge, but measure this woman against her historical accomplishments, but then really her job as a mother, her, her you know, her how she does as a mm-hmm. mother and all of these kids and stuff. Do, do you find that there's a, uh, that that comes into your writing and thinking about a woman's sort of expectations to the period, or are you looking at her really solely from the modern perspective? Are you sort of measuring for the expectations of her as a mother and how she relates to her children, or are you trying to kind of keep it in a very modern sense? You have to keep it in the historical sense. And I, my background, I got my degree in sociology and minor in anthropology. For me, it, you have to kind of take this anthropological look at history where you can't interfere with it. And so I like to watch it and and look at it, but looking at this history, there was this bit of like the queenship is something that always comes into mind when you talk about the feminism of uh, Maria Carolina, because the Queens actually had this thing where they would share female, other female artists. They would find the female artists, painters, sculptors, what have you, and they would commission them for works and they would share them amongst themselves. So uh, Angelica Kaufman is one that comes to mind and all of these uh, royal portraits that you see, those are by a a woman. And she's also, she did some, I think she did some art with um, Marie Antoinette, but I know for sure for those out there who may be Bridgerton fans, uh, the Charlotte that's in England at that time, she did all the paintings for her. And our girl Maria Carolina stole her from them. Mm. But then at the same time, you have this idea of what it meant for king and country. And in her time, you have no abortion, you have no birth control. And you have this king who says, all right, we're going to go to bed tonight. If she says no, that's tantamount to treason. Very true. She couldn't say, oh, I've got a headache because that was treason. And so that was... There was that, you know, these advances that she was able to make as a woman, but yet at the same time, she was held back by these standards that women had to have in the 18th century. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, you talk about the sort of uh, marital requirements. I know from my reading of this history and their letters back and forth and and to others, uh, Maria Carolina was very aware of the fact that while she was not particularly attracted to Ferdinand, who was not a particularly attractive guy by any standards, he was, uh, amongst his many titles, uh, was Ray Nazone, the, the, the big-nosed king, because his nose was... I've seen the life castings of he and her uh, that exist in Italy today, and he had probably the largest nose <laughs> you've ever seen. I mean, it's, a, it's such a prominent feature. Uh, but she always talked about how she did have some sort of attraction and and affection for him and whenever she really needed him to do something all she had to do was take off her uh gloves because mm-hmm. he was so attracted to her arms and her her wrists and, and hands mm-hmm. that she, if he really wasn't bending his will to her global geopolitical strategy she would just take off a glove and he'd be completely seduced and, and there you get <laughs> 17 uh, offspring um i i just think their relationship is such a, a fascinating one. I mean, they, you know, they're they're together for so many years. They rule together for 55, 56 years before she passes. It's a, it's a huge swath of Southern Italian history. It's a huge, even in any kind of royal history, you know, you have people dying early. Childbirth was a very dangerous thing for women. And so 17 births is a miracle that she lived that long through all of those births. And that was something that I would talk about as well. Uh, and there was one scene in there where she's, talking about the fact that I think one of my favorite lines um, was you're holding life in one hand, but yet you're also risking your own death at the same time. And that's something that really, you know, had to, I had to really push up for that because her own children, she had, her daughters died in childbirth. It happens so often. And, and you talk about, you know, Maria Teresa and Queen Victoria and this idea of the mothers of Europe. I mean, she's amongst them because, Mm -hmm. 
through her offspring and Ferdinand's offspring, the royal family of the Two Sicilies is married into the line of France under the uh, Orleonist dynasty, the mm-hmm. line of uh, Portugal and Brazil. I mean, people don't think about after 1860, but even even during World War One, mm-hmm. when many Southern uh, independentists, because Italy was only 50 years old, are rooting for an Austrian victory in hopes that the Southern kingdom will be restored, when Franz Ferdinand, the Austrian heir, is is assassinated in Sarajevo, uh, we don't think about it, but but he's half uh, two Sicilian. Mm-hmm. His mother, mm-hmm. right? That he comes from his yeah. line. So, yeah, amazing, really, how integrated because of her and Ferdinand's brood, mm-hmm. uh, just tie everything in and our history into all these other histories. Now that you have written about the pre-unitary era and then the unification of Anita Garibaldi. Where do you come down on unification? Good, bad, indifferent? Um, I kind of... It's, it, that's a really complicated question for me because it's... I want, you know, the idea of unification as Garibaldi saw it was a good thing, but the after effect of it, the effect that it had on the South wasn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. From, you know, all the businesses and you know, you even had like factories and stuff, if I'm not mistaken, get moved up to the north and you were left with really nothing in the south. Yeah. And so I think that was really detrimental to the southern population. It's funny, you're as a Calabrese talking about that. I remember one of the facts that I dug up is uh, in 1855 or six, when the when Paris hosted the second international exhibition after the 1851 World's Fair in London, they actually ranked the industrial nations of the world. And the Two Sicilies comes in third after the UK and and France. And they put forth this packet of assessment of industry in Calabria, which becomes, after unification, one of the two poorest regions in the country, was actually one of the most industrialized in the South at the time. And all of that is just sort of wiped out. So what an interesting impact on on you directly, right? And Mm -hmm. and the change economically there. You're, You're absolutely right about Garibaldi's intention versus what happened. And I always remind people that a year after unification, Garibaldi goes on the record saying, we've done more damage to the South in one year of unified Italy than was done in the entire existence of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. So that's from his own mouth, uh, not mine. So it's, yeah, it's a complex and fascinating Mm -hmm. one. And I'm so glad that you've contributed this wonderful work into the dialogue around it. And I think it's safe to say for our listeners you know, we talk about this stuff a lot, but everybody seems hungry for more of it. So this is a great opportunity to go out and get a book that's going to give you not only the history, but also a fun personal look at a phenomenally fascinating woman. Thank you. And we're going to link on our show page for those of you who are interested. You can see the book where it's available. I highly recommend going out and, and supporting the project. Buy Diana's books. Mother's Day, Valentine's <laughs> Day, Easter baskets. Buy the books. Give them to your friends. You're going to love the books the way that we did. And this is how we move forward. This is how we do what we do. You're absolutely right. This is how you encourage people to write more, to do more, is by supporting them in their effort. Amen. Amen. And your efforts have made a, a great impact so far. I know that uh, the woman in red, well, well received. And this one, I'm sure as well. So I hope everybody out there enjoyed this episode and this interview with a passionate Italian-American who's doing her part and will absolutely go out and uh, and get the book and let us know what you think. And You know it's got to be good when you hear John this excited. I can get two words in. That's how much John <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I'm looking forward to reading it, and uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed our time together, this great conversation, this great character. Go out and get the book. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian.